Hello and welcome to a new episode of uh, Syndrome. Uh, my name is Ben Wheeler and I have been recording these interviews with my friends um, pretty much since the lockdown began. This new episode sees me talking to uh, a good friend and film buddy, uh, Dan Brown. Hi, Dan. Hello. Uh, how, how's it going? It's good. It's good. How's, how, how's the lockdown going for you? Let's do some lockdown banter. Oh, the lockdown sucks, dude. It does suck pretty hard. This is it's getting it's getting old, isn't it? Uh, it's been like what 10, 10 weeks, I think. Yeah, over two months, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is my eighth, uh, eighth recording, eighth interview, and I think I started a couple of weeks after the beginning. So yeah, but we're soldiering on, and um, and you've got you've got a cat right now, which is nice. She's around, yeah. She's outside right now, but yeah. And she's keeping you company. She is, yeah. It's a good cat. That's good. That's good. Okay, so so today we're going to talk about your um, your film choices, uh, which are fascinating and interesting, and all the all those adjectives that I love to use, and we'll try not to use so much. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna add that um, for the first time since Malcolm's interview, it, it's Friday night, mm. and we are both going to have a, a drink together great yes, friends that we yeah. are in order to facilitate the conversation <laughs> yeah cheers cheers so uh if you wouldn't mind just giving us a very brief bio we'll get straight into the the film memories and reflections after that okay i'm a librarian here at the university of the south pacific um, before that i was an english professor i have a phd in english i did that for a while but right now i'm doing library stuff so is that enough? I think that's enough. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that. So, yeah, uh, let's go. Let's move on to the first question, which is why Why do you like film? Nice, easy one to start you off. Oh, that's a good question, actually. Um, you know, the funny thing is I didn't actually get into film very much until I was probably in high school, really. Um, I had a friend of mine who kind of introduced me to film. Uh, Matt Hudson, you know him, right? I do. You talk to him. Yeah. He's kind of the one who got me to like really appreciate film a bit more. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't really watch a lot of movies. We'd sort of every now and then have a film. Like my parents, we didn't own a VCR. So my parents would like rent a VCR from the library. Or we'd rent like this um, like film reel, like this, you know, like the actual like reel. Oh, no way. Like, so you put it on a projector, like a kind of... Oh, it's Super 8 deal. Yeah, like we, we put it up on the wall. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, I don't know. Films were kind of like a rare treat for me when I was growing up. And I, I didn't like... Yeah, it's funny. I didn't really grow up with that. Um, I remember going to my earliest memory. I don't know. Am I jumping ahead of myself? We're skipping memories? ahead a little bit. Yeah, earliest memory okay. is the next, <laughs> the next bit. Okay. Uh, but I t- I t- so, <laughs> so, so films... You like films because they're sort of a bit of a treat. You didn't have them growing up. Is that is that where we're going? Yeah, that's that's where I would start off with. Yes, they were definitely a bit of a treat. So growing up, and you know what's interesting? Um, just to jump in there, I didn't realize this until today. I don't think that I, I was listening to an interview with. Um, okay, so it was Richard Linklater, 
who's a director that we both kind of like his movies, introducing Mishima at a, a film festival in Austin, Texas. Uh, and, he, really? and he said that apparently Paul Schrader grew up in a, like a Calvinist uh, family and they, they never... In, Mich- in Michigan. Oh, really? He was, it yeah, was in Michigan? Yeah, yeah. He's from the same state I'm from, yeah. I went to undergrad out, out his uh, Western Michigan. That's, that's where he's from. So is it a Michigan yeah. thing then? You know, no, no, <laughs> no movies for the kids. It could be, man. I don't, Michigan's a weird place. You know, we've we've bred some uh, some special people. You know, you got the Unabomber. There, yeah. You got the uh, the Oklahoma City guy was from Michigan. You know. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of kind of militia-based stuff, but but that we're digressing a little bit. Yeah. I think. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go into your your earliest movie memories because there's some there's some interesting stuff in here. There's some gold in here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I, you know, my sorry, my earliest memory actually is um, going to this like local. So I grew up in like a small town called South Lyon. And there was like a one theater, you know, place there. Um, the first movie I saw, it, I, it was Snow White, and it scared the shit out of me. It, it was sorry, I'm supposed to swear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it it frightened me quite considerably. Snow White did. Uh, the witch. I remember like the witch was like this huge presence up on the screen, very loud, very big. And I just remember being very frightened by it. And that's pretty much all I I don't know if I even sat through the whole film. But, um, yeah, my earliest memory was actually being completely terrified by, by what I was seeing. It's, it's interesting, man, uh, because, and, and there's that word already, uh, but, but a, lo- <laughs> a lot of people that I'm talking to, their earliest memories of being at the, at the movies was uh, overwhelming and traumatizing. These are, these are the two kind of... Um, watchwords so that was the same it was the same for you as well snow white and the seven dwarfs i don't think i mean that was like <laughs> that's not supposed to be a scary it's not well I, I, I they do try and scare you don't they the disney films yeah what i was gonna say is that it was the famously the first the first disney film so i was wondering how old you are but oh really <laughs> yeah. it's like the 19 1930s or 40s that came out i think i don't know yeah that's a good question <laughs> i don't know i don't know i don't know why it was showing there and mom probably took me to see it. I don't remember now. It's a great one to watch as well. I do. I do remember reading about like some maverick uh, Disney animators who were putting all these kind of quite subversive images in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, like hallucinogenic mushrooms and stuff like that. That okay. co- comes up again and again with some of the earlier um, Disney kind of films. Yeah, it was the scene where the witch is talking into the mirror, and there's like all these like flames, flames around her and stuff. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, terrified me, man. That was too much very dark yeah it does do dark quite well disney and again it's something that i've talked about before with some other guests sometimes it's it's you know the idea of like parents dying is quite quite a a regular feature and trope of disney films but this is just dark weirdness that you're talking about and and that's that's something that disney does in spades as well you know like the uh the 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 dumbo scene of pink elephants gets really kind of a bit out there as well i'm not sure if you've seen that one it's been a long time yeah but my my you know in re, I, as I got older my favorite song has always been like the villain song though in Disney movies right like uh, like Scar's song and 
you know that the, the Scar awesome. song it famously was was controversial for having all the sort of uh, fascistic Nazi imagery in it, right? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, he's a bad guy. Right? The, yeah, he's a bad guy. There's, a, there's, a, I think, I think I'm right in saying that he's got goose stepping hyenas in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Interesting. So I think it's Whoopi Goldberg and uh, is it Cheech or Cheech? It's Cheech Marin. Cheech Marin. Yeah. 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 I mean, I could I could talk uh, for hours about the Lion King and how how <laughs> and my complicated feelings about that movie because I do love it, you know. I, I and but ideologically, there's the there's the there's the tying together of um, wow, there, there's so much going on there. It's a bit racist, it's a bit sexist, it's a bit homophobic, and it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was like what Disney in the nineties, right? Exactly, I mean, Disney was... in the nineties didn't know what it was up to. Really, it hadn't <laughs> yeah, corrected yeah. itself as it as it has these days. Yeah. Another Disney song I was always impressed by was the um, Hellfire from the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, do you know I've not seen that one? So you'll have to oh, explain really? that a little bit. It's, I mean, again, it's a Disney cartoon, but it's like a song. This like priest who's like turned on by this gypsy woman. Gypsy again, gypsy. It's, I'm sure that's. You're not supposed to say that word anymore, but like <laughs> he's turned on by this woman, and it's like this song about his lust. Like I was lost, is like driving him mad for this woman, and, um, and he's a priest. <laughs> yeah, he's a priest. Well, it, you know, it's based on the Hunchback of Notre Dame or the Notre Dame de Paris, mm. uh, the Victor Hugo novel. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I know of it, but I've not, I've not seen it. Um, so yeah, it's you know it's a bit ridiculous. I mean, it turns it into like this like triumph of the hero and everything. It's not at all what the novel is. And... No, no. Well, it really is, is it? I mean, there's there's the great uh, one of my favorite examples recently of uh, what I imagine is a Disney film. I'm not 100 percent sure. Is Saving Mr. Banks, which is the story of uh, the adaptation of Mary Poppins. So it stars Emma Thompson as P.L. Travers and Tom Hanks as Walt Disney, which is, uh, okay. again, really, really interesting. Lots of uh, stuff going on there. Uh, but let's let's move on from, from Disney and from, from those uh, early problematic uh, experiences in the and traumatic and overwhelming experiences. I think I remember you saying that you had another early cinematic memory that was overwhelming in a different way, in a sort of triumphant, patriotic way. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so um, you know, one one of your one of your choices is for the fil- the physical film, right? And uh, I was trying to think of like what film was affecting me physically. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I had an experience when I was quite a bit younger. Um, it was a Rocky Four was the film. Yeah, uh, I had never seen any of these Rocky films, and I was at some friends like an overnight, uh, like a sleepover party at a friend's house, and they just put this film on, and I was like, uh, whatever. Like, and yeah, man, like when at the fight at the end when he's fighting like the uh, with the Russian dude, you know, and there's like throwing punches and everything. <laughs> like I felt myself like getting into it, like oh wow, like this this is real like you really like you can really be like drawn into a film this way like where you actually want to like fight alongside the main character you know like which is not a feeling that i had really experienced much and it's not really a feeling i've experienced much since then but i do remember like watching that film and like really you know like eight years old maybe 10 years old i don't know quite young Uh, but yeah i remember getting drawn into it 
it's it's it's, it's an interesting uh, process. You know, the idea of as someone myself who is still resolutely, uh, you know, sort of non-violent, pacifist, mar- marginal hippie type character. Um, yeah, I can. I I both feel that I flinch a lot when I'm watching kind of action films or horror films, but I do get that sense of triumphant, you know, beat that guy down. Yeah, I mean, he killed his friend, man. Like, well, he killed Apollo Creed. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Dolph Lundgren, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I remember it well. I didn't. I don't think I felt it quite so much in that movie, but I, I felt it in other yeah. movies, and and I still do. You know, oh my god, like, and and yet ideologically, I'm like, I, I really like films where there's no final showdown and there's no kind of none of that kind of violent things, and yet, as much as I want to be that sort of. Um, intellectual film watcher i still find myself really drawn into those violent confrontations as you describe absolutely so um, let's let's move on now to talk about uh favorite soundtracks uh, movie scores or soundtracks you got some uh, i think you you know what my favorite composer is right well you're gonna go you're gonna you're gonna bring get the glass out definitely Phil glass <laughs> yes Phil glass there's, there's films that i like only because philip glass this out uh, the score so for, just start off by giving us your favorite just run down a few favorite films that, that he scores before we talk about why all right oh, well we'll talk about Mishima later so that's one of my mm-hmm. favorites um thin blue line the, the documentary oh he did that as well no way yeah yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah this yeah, is yeah, a film you've introduced me to yeah yeah um Koyana Scotsi, of course which i know you hate <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate it. I've just never really gotten into it. Like my friend Tom Waters, who maybe may well be listening to this. I'll name drop him, and okay. um, yeah, he'll be glad to hear that you're trying to trying to get me to watch it. Um, yeah. So, but there's also uh, the hours, right? Did he do that? The hours, yeah. yeah he scored the hours. Um, the Truman Show. Truman Truman Show, yeah, which he plagiarized himself. On a couple of the tracks, <laughs> but moving on, moving on. Yeah, any others we've missed before we get into why you like this? Um, what, what was the one? No on a scandal. Ah, oh, no on a scandal. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So this is. I mean, we're, we're we're for anyone that's not getting this. We 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 have a film club, Dan and I, and up until recently, Malcolm, mm. here in uh, in Fiji, and we've watched a lot of the same movies. And and Dan has introduced me to some fantastic movies, and I have tried to re- return the favor. Um, so yeah, mo- most of those actually we've watched. Some some you've selected for our film clubs, but some others other people have, and they've just happened to be scored by yeah. Philip Glass, which must have been very pleasing yeah. for you. It was. I, I didn't. I didn't know about um, No Time of Scandal even. So yeah, that was that was quite a treat discovering that one. What is it you like about his soundtracks? It's a good question. I don't know. There's something just very mesmeric about it, and I think. I think um, actually Errol Morris, um, who directed *Thin Blue Line*, said something. <laughs> so I'm sure you'll love this. Um, <laughs> that Philip Glass taps into existential dread better than any other composer that he knows of. Well, you know, I love a bit of existential dread, man. <laughs> I'm all about it. Yeah. And I can't. And and I, I, as I expressed to you before we even started, it, it's a good job that we have a whiskey in hand because things are going to yes. get a bit <laughs> existential and a bit dready. <laughs> A bit dreadful. A bit dreadful. <laughs> I think I, I just want to, just before we kind of move on, my own 
feelings about Philip Glass. Like, I never really paid much attention to the fact that he'd scored quite a lot of movies before before mm. talking about it with you. And and it's yeah. interesting. I think I'd put him up there now with, like, Clint, Clint Mansell or Mansell, I don't know how to do his name, the guy that did Requiem for a Dream, who oh, yeah. I remember from the 90s being in a band called Pop Will Eat Itself and is now one of the great one of the great film uh, scorers along with um, the guy from Nine Inch Nails. What's his name? Reznor? Yeah, Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah like okay. all these great bands from my youth. Uh, yeah. Also, the guy, uh, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, you know, he does some great film scores as well. Yeah. But Philip Glass, he, he, he's a, like a classical composer um, that, that I think my only real memory from that, from the 90s, from growing up, was him doing that silence thing, right? The silence thing? That's Johnny Cage, I think you're thinking of. Okay, we'll, we'll cut that out. Four minutes or whatever of silence. We'll cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I do like to get one at least one thing wrong in every single podcast. So I've started early with this one. Brilliant. It's the same kind of pretentious, minimalist nonsense, right? Yeah, my goodness. <laughs> what, what am I thinking of? Did he? What did he do? Did he do... No, let's move on. I'm digging myself a hole right. here. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, we've done fate. We've done favorite soundtracks. Yeah, I, I will say, adding to that, two other composers that I really like. Oh yeah, go for it. Michael Nyman and Anita Morricone. So, Michael Nyman, I don't know who that is. I don't think you know him probably from Peter Greenaway films. He uh, did the uh, the thief, the cook, the wife, and his lover. Yeah. Which is one that I'd like to... I think maybe the next film club will do that one. That's one of the most messed up films I've ever seen in my life. It, it is crazy, yeah. yeah. And I've not seen it for such a long time either. I, I really want to rewatch it. Yeah. But it en- might be, yeah. Ennio Morricone is one of the greats. Have you got a favourite a favorite score by him? Because he's done... So, like He did like all the spaghetti westerns, all the Sergio Leone films, but he also did like... The Untouchables and... Uh, Tar- a lot of Tarantino films. Yeah, a couple of Tarantino films, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, good good to many. Ugly, of course. That's the classic, right? That's... that's Ecstasy of Gold. <laughs> <I think that's, laughs> it's good stuff, man. That's classic. Yeah. Um, okay, right. So let's... Uh, what I'll probably have a little sound break in there. Okay. Then we'll come back and we'll be talking about um, your your actual film choices, where I've asked you, I've given you three categories and asked you to select a film from each. Now, the first one I think we're going to go with is, is physical. What was your choice for physical? So my physical was uh, Night of the Living Dead. Boom. Great choice, man. Boom. So this is one of my favorite films from one of my favorite series of films, from one of my favorite genres of films. So we're on, we're on solid ground already. But take, take me through your, your decision process here. After you put Rocky Four out of your mind. <laughs> so this is, a, this is one that uh, Matt Hudson actually introduced me to. And, um, you know, I'd always heard of this film was kind of like a silly, like, jokey film. Like, my brother talked about it. Like, he talked about the colorized version and, like, how they zombies were green and it was just kind of dumb 
So I went into it, like, thinking it was just going to be kind of silly and funny, but, like, like when I finished watching it, the feeling of just, like, dread, just, like, and maybe you could say it's, like, an emotional feeling, but I feel like it's more like a physical, like, just in your gut, like, you just feel, like, this sense of dread, like, watching the whole thing, and, like, it's almost like nausea afterwards, you know, like, just, like, just, like, it just hits me in a physical way, that movie, like, it's... I don't, I don't know how to describe I've seen it so many times. I don't know how to describe it, but it's just like the the idea behind it and just like this sense of like claustrophobia. I, I don't know. I, I, I'll, I'll let you ask a question or something. <laughs> but yeah. It, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm enjoying how you're you're struggling to, to verbalize this because it's, <laughs> it's a physical, visceral thing, right? And the thing I realized ahead of time was like all three of my films that I picked, like the, the reason I picked them is like visceral. <laughs> Like, it's hard for me to even explain, like, why they hit me the way. But I guess, like, good film does that, right? It just, like, hits you. Like, you don't think about it. It just, like, has a reaction. Right. It's, like, something that, like, gets in you and just does something, like, messes with you, you know? So it's overwhelming, like, going back to that original kind of experience. Yeah, It's, like, you're there in the mirror with with the witch from Snow White all over again. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that scene where... The, the the two uh, like it's like it's a young man and woman, and they go to get gas right, and the, the zombie you know there's an explosion and the zombies get them and man it's it's so messed up like yeah it's obviously they went to the butcher or whatever they got like whatever cast us but that scene just is so disturbing to me is it no matter how many times I watch it yeah and it's so disturbing I mean so this is a film I've seen many times. Um, but I rewatched it a couple of days ago in lieu of this uh, discussion. And that, I think that is one of the most, um, it's one of the most graphic scenes in the whole film. Like when that, when the young couple dies after trying to get gas um, and we see the zombies like devouring their leftovers. And I think that, that goes for a real, that gets a real good shock value because, because they are, they are played as like all American kind of young, optimistic kind of couple, you know, gee whiz, we can get this done if we all work together. And then it's like, no, you're going to get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> and, and contrasted to that, like family that's in the basement, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they're pretty bad, but they come to a pretty sticky end as well. That scene, that scene really disturbed me too when the daughter like the uh the trowel the, the kid yeah the, the yeah. first time i saw that i was like that was pretty traumatic that i think was my worst that's my worst scene in the film even more so than watching the young couple being having their intestines eaten it's it's the debate it's the young daughter and the trowel and the relentless stabbing motion and the, the, right. the camera angles and the the shadows and and just that whole scene is is brutal i think it really is yeah no, the first that stuck with me a long time. The first time I saw it, like that film was that's a rough one. Yeah, and it and it is to go back to 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 that idea of of why it's so upsetting that the young kind of gosh darn it gee whiz couple the all all American I'm going to call them for one of a better phrase couple <laughs> uh, don't make it. This is a film which is so nihilistic and so, and so all encompassingly <laughs> kind of uh, pessimistic about anyone's chances of survival. Uh, that's what I find so brilliant about it. It's like you know the the, the brother and sister 
who love each other but are have playful sort of you know teasings they meet a sticky end you know the 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 black guys the white guys sticky end sticky end the young romantic couple sticky end the nuclear family sticky end yeah, you know, yeah. the only people that survive are those weird marauding groups of rednecks you know the, the rednecks <laughs> yeah which I, I will say mcclellan has one of the best lines of the film yeah they're dead they're, they're all messed up they're all messed up <laughs> yeah no it's 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 a bleak it's a bleak bleak film i think it and, really is and what yeah. better way yeah. to to introduce your <laughs> personality <laughs> oh man <laughs> so anything else you want to say about about night of the living dead I, th- I think for me it is that overwhelming bleakness and and the fact that you have this real broad range of characters in a quite a sort of theatrical closed space who are just all all picked off you know and there's a kind of there's a kind of realism to it too yeah. right like it's even though it's like a horrific it's like a kind of fantasy subject but it's it has a kind of like almost documentary feel to it right so it kind of feel yeah like it feels real like you know it feels like something that could happen or, it, i don't know it, it i think it's that grainy footage i mean like sort of so yeah this was 68 i think and so it's the same decade as psycho and i think it's 1960 when psycho yeah. came out a lot of the power from that came from the fact that most most films were color at this point but these two films make a choice to go back to black and white, which is what most people were used to seeing the news and television footage on. So it, it kind of really, it strikes home a little bit more, the graininess and the black and white. And there's a real contrast between like the kind of the rational, you know, like the voices on the TV, you know, that are very rational and explaining everything. And then just the chaos that's happening around them, you know. Yeah. I watched the, um, the sequel too, the Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, and then Day of the Dead as well. So w- watching this film the other day made me want to really want to watch Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, and also the Evil Dead trilogy, which is the sort of like three Three Stooges playful <laughs> take on the genre. I need to watch Evil Dead. I've, I honestly, I've never seen it, and it sounds like something I'd love, and I really want to see it. I think you would. I think you would. It's a very interesting trilogy. It's a very weird trilogy. Like like I say, a lot of slapstick going on in there. Yeah, I like um, Bruce Campbell. Ah, he's amazing. The, the the whole trilogy and the whole the whole genre. Uh, I talked about this in a, a couple of interviews ago with Sutapa, who yeah, right, right. Who we had this kind of discussion about whether or not zombies should be shambling or whether they're allowed to be kind of fast and and that that all really starts here with the menace. I, I mentioned in particular the idea of the the menace of the um, of the silent majority. And when when this film came out. Um, it was it was partially a response to Nixon's silent majority. You know, he called on this uh, this aspect, this demographic of the American public that was going to be for the Vietnam War, right? When all these all these angry young hippies were protesting, he was like the the silent majority was going to come out and back him. And, and I, I think at least partially, this film is a representation of that. And and so it has to be kind of shambling and in the background and not yeah active in that way yeah like there's something very inevitable but but yeah like individually they're not any you know not very strong but like over time you know they'll they'll overpower it right right by force of attrition kind of thing yeah 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 yeah. 
Plus, it is again just the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? The idea of yeah, yeah, slow a slow moving kind of menace. Fast moving things are yeah, they don't really don't really occur occur in 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 dreams or nightmares. Not mine anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um, so that's that's the physical choice. Yeah, there was another physical choice that we had talked about. Oh, what was that? Grizzly Man. Ah, okay. So I thought we were going to do like a little Werner Herzog coda at the end. But oh, okay. okay. Gotcha. No, that's good. <laughs> I think it'd be it'd be nice to talk about generally Herzog's films at the end. Yeah. Yeah, because I really love his films, but I didn't have any individual films to use as examples. So. No, I think unlike most people, you've selected one film for each category, finally. Okay. Which is good, which should leave us with a bit right. of time at the end, and I thought we'd do a Hertz right. a Herzog bit at the end. A Herzog coda. All yeah, right. yeah. That's good. Yeah. Alright, cool. So um so the physical the, the physical film is out the way. Let's yeah. swing the other way now and go into emotional territory. Which film did you pick for emotional? So for emotional I picked the film Mishima, which is a film directed by Paul Schrader. It's about the Japanese novelist uh, Yukia Yukia Mishima. Yukia Mishima, pen name, pseudonym, right? Yeah, his pen name. Yeah, it's a crazy film. How to describe it? Really. Like it, it starts off sort of dictating his his infamous last day, where he um, hijacked the Japanese embassy, or I don't, I don't know what that is. Yeah, he, I think it's like the it's it's army barracks, right? It's yeah, yeah, it's like a military. Some sort of military thing. base. Yeah. And he um, delivered his little speech to them and then committed uh, ritual suicide. Yeah. And this actually happened. This, and this is yeah. another crazy, okay, it's crazy for a start. The first film was crazy. Yeah. I'm not sure if we we got up we got onto that but also just like really kind of bleak <laughs> weird there's a lot of there's there's a, there's a real big crossover here between people getting disemboweled going to draw that connection true away. true um some through choice some not uh, but what I mean, there, there are so many things I love about this film again this is a film that you introduced me to I'd never even heard of it um before you recommended that I watch it, and it's fantastic. Interesting. What now that we're on to the second film? I think you are the first person I've interviewed that has selected three Criterion Collection movies. So that's damn. All right. What about that? <laughs> so Night of the Living Dead it has a Criterion Collection. Uh, Mishima has a Criterion Collection, and your last choice as well, which we will get onto, also has. So well done. Well done, you. To be fair, Armageddon also has a Criterion collection, so... Does it? I, yes. Wow. <laughs> way to... Way to bring it down. Man. Yeah, a few notches. What is that? That's like directed by Michael Bay and starring Ben Affleck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the asteroid movie. Yeah. It has um, Aerosmith soundtrack. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we'll yeah. say no more. Criterion tick. Yeah. Stamp. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, it's just so I don't come across as too snob. <laughs> well, you're just you're just <laughs> suggesting that Criterion aren't too snobby at the moment. You're still you're still riding high on an intellectual kind of tsunami, exactly. I would say. Exactly. And we haven't even got to your intellectual choice yet. 
Let's get it back. Let's get back to Mishima. <laughs> this is a film. This is a film that's so crazy. I don't even know how it got made, but I did. I heard an <laughs> apocryphal story that this is how it got made. Uh, that George Lucas, um, his first film that was produced by Warner Brothers, the the THX one one three eight, the pre Star Wars kind of flop. cult classic um, that Warner Brothers kind of screwed him over on he he spent so long in interviews saying Warner Brothers screwed me over on this before (laughs) Star Wars that the Warner Brothers apparently came approached him and said look what would it take for you to stop complaining about us so much in interviews because <laughs> okay. you're like now you're george lucas now you're star wars wunderkind uh we want to get on your good side and he was like well i'm i'm producing this movie uh mishima and if you get in behind it we've got japanese backers if you could be the american backers i'll stop complaining that's the story that i heard about how it got made because it's a weird move like not just weird brilliant interesting but how who wanted this movie you have to ask yourself (laughs) (laughs) it's a good question yeah Uh, i think the japanese didn't want it because it it no there's there's a sort of the the left wing and the right wing didn't like mishima he was essentially a right winger and a traditionalist and a conservative, but he was homosexual, so he they, they distanced themselves from him, for yeah for the right wingness and the conservative and the traditionalism. The left wing didn't want anything to do with him, and then like American backers, why would you make this movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, I mean, Paul Schrader has kind of always been like a he's kind of done what he wants to do, right? Exactly, and that's what's really interesting about it that that, that like like a lot of biopics right there's there's a certain there's a desire on Schrader's part I think to represent Mishima but also to put himself in there and Schrader is a character that's like Mishima right do you think hmm could be that's yeah that's an interesting point I I'm intrigued I'm intrigued by that yes I I think so because I think um so we're going to get back into like existential dread again I think because I've seen (laughs) quite a lot of interviews with Paul Schrader <laughs> where he laments the death of the existential hero yeah. uh, and and the rise of the ironic hero you know like he doesn't like he he likes uh he likes heroes that sort of wallow like taxi driver so famously he wrote taxi driver yeah. a sort of a self-questioning what is my place in all this kind of morality and even in the narrative sort of self-reflexively that kind of anti-hero which gave way throughout the the, the 70s and the, uh, into the 80s and the 90s to the ironic hero okay. who was just like why am i here why do i care <laughs> okay so that's arnold it's irony just kind of waking at the camera and chopping down on a cigar at exactly the end. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so mishima had the same thing he was like sort of watching the the overthrow of the of the sort of emperor in Japan and that whole period uh, and into that and into the new period. So you could draw that link. Yeah, he's such an odd, he's such an iconoclastic, just like where he's so hard to pigeonhole, you know, like, I mean, there is, you know, and, and he gets sort of like um, almost sort of Marxist, right? Like sort of anti-capitalist. But yeah, if he said at the same time, very right wing and sort of monarchist, like, like, what is he, right? Like, <laughs> He's just sort of fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> to coin a phrase, he's he's all he's all messed up. He's all over the shop. But he's yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky yeah, one. Yeah. He's very hard to pigeonhole, like you yeah. say. But what I, I really love about the film is the way, like, it has all these like different modes to it, right? So there's like a present day where it's like color, and it's like him going to his last day, and you got like his past where it's like black and white. But I, I really like the like the the adaptations of his novels, where they're very stylized. Um, my favorite one, I think, is probably the first one, the the Temple of the Golden Pavilion. And I remember the first time I watched this, there's like this scene where the main character, he's like, um, it's like this schizophrenic monk with like a, he's got a speech impediment, he stutters. And he's, he's like, uh, he works for this, uh, the temple of the golden pavilion. And he's sort of obsessed with like the beauty of this, this building. And there's a scene where the building just like flies open and there's like that Philip Glass music in the background. And he's just like overwhelmed by just like the beauty of the building, this gold, the music, and it's just like this overwhelming sensation that kind of washes over you. Like I, that, that I just remember watching that and just feeling like this, this overpowering feeling, you know, just watching that. And it's, it, it, I don't know, it really struck me. Mm. It's, it's incredible. I, I think even, even from the opening, um, the opening credits, right, where that Philip Glass music kicks in, and it's the exact same refrain that happens when the pavilion breaks open, right? It goes straight back to that incredible motif, that 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 part of the of the soundtrack. Yeah. And yeah, it's incredible. I lo- I love that moment yeah. for all the reasons you said. Uh, but I, I and I and I love that soundtrack. I love it so mm. much. It's it seems so weirdly. It seems for a start like I've heard it before. Yeah. I think I've asked you this before. Has it been used in other films? Just like plagiarized or it was used in the Truman Show. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But um. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. Uh, the the stylization and the theatricality that you talk about of those adaptations really pops out as well stylistically like the like the 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 last day of his life which is in a sort of quite naturalized color the 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 backstory is in the black and white and then there's this real technicolor kind of theatrical hyper stylized adaptations of yeah. some of his novels are they all novels or some of them plays they're all novels um they're all novels see but they do it in such a theatrical way and with this incredible kind of production design and set design um i love it and i think i really like the first one like you said but this time around the second one really struck me uh i'm not the second one sorry the third one where it's the the, the assassin kind of um running through the the woods the forest which is sort of like like got this Suspiria Technicolor lighting with the blues and the and the yellows and the reds and he kind of rips with the knife through that wall before he stabs him and it's got the weird classical painting on it I really love that bit yeah it's great yeah it's funny I showed it I, I recommended it to a friend of mine and um, I think he mostly liked it. he didn't like he really didn't like the second one but um, mostly he liked it the second one is the it's is probably the, the weakest one, one right? yeah it is weird yeah not the weakest, no weirdest. I, 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 I love it. I love that one as well. The, the cutting and the bruising, like the the bit sort of towards the end where he takes off his yeah. clothes and he's got the bruises and the burns and the cuts. Yeah, and it's like, this kind of weird sadom, sadomasochistic thing that they have. And it's interesting that 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 sadomasochistic uh, 
part in that second act is intercut with with some of the most kind of some of the most uh, uh, interesting parts of his private life in terms of his homosexuality as well the idea of him going and working out and like uh, wanting to become more muscular and go into that the, the homosexual club and dancing with the guy that makes him feel bad. So I, I like that interplay of the darkest, weirdest novel adaptation being part of that. It's got kind of an Oscar stuff. Wilde sort of feel to it too, doesn't it? It's this kind of this sort of aestheticization of of yourself. You know, you're presenting yourself. It's like an art commodity, and uh, I don't know, disfiguration. Yeah, and and sort of feeling as a bit sort of bruised and beaten up in that respect. He he has this weird thing, prob- possibly a bit of psychopathy in there. I think in terms of how he presents himself. Uh, but there's that that interesting line that he says about I I I wanted to be not just like he said that art being a writer being an artist is about voyeurism and seeing. But I wanted to be not only the seer but the scene. You know, I wanted to be the object of people's gaze. So, so there's a lot of that weird like collapsing of like binaries I think in there which also happens uh, in in Night of the Living Dead I think you know the idea of like undead dead and alive that's that's kind of a weird binary thing and they they get they get into that more in the second film too right how that like like they're us right like the dead are just us Right, like they're they're going to the mall because that's what we did when we were alive. We went to the mall. <laughs> exactly. What what are they doing here? Some kind of memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Definitely. Definitely. This is body horror, right? This sort of embodied existence that we have, right? But then that's that's interesting that you should bring up uh, Dawn of the Dead at this point after after suggesting that Mishima was a bit of an anti-capitalist figure right because the, the the whole of dawn of the dead is about anti-consumerism anti-capitalism so angry marxists <laughs> <laughs> like uh uh slavoj zizek is gonna God. come out and start talking to <laughs> oh come on i just rewatched the uh, pervert's guide to ideology the other day i love that movie uh, have you seen that movie Maybe, I maybe I think I saw it in graduate school ages ago. It's bad. You might have at least seen clips of it, man, where he taught, where he gives these like hardcore kind of leftist readings of films like They Live and Titanic. Is he wearing and, a toga at some point? Oh, I don't know. He does sort of dress as characters in the films he's talking about. I think he wears a habit at one point when he's talking about the Sound of Music. <laughs> no, I don't think I've seen this. I gotta watch this. Oh man, you've got to watch it. Okay, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll move on because that's that's another digression. <laughs> um, no, no, that's my fault that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so we'll move on to your uh, intellectual choice. I mean, or or uh, your third criterion choice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a really hammer home. <laughs> Uh, this is the film Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, how to describe Stalker? Oh, geez. Well, there's this zone, right? This mysterious zone. Um, and only the stalkers, these guys who have, I don't know what, they're gifted somehow. They can go into the zone and they, they get paid by people to, to visit the zone. So he gets paid by this 
writer and a professor, right, to go to go and visit. And, uh, it's kind of their adventure into the zone and, and what all happens to them. There's a room, right? There's a room in the zone, too, right, where you go and you can have your innermost desire granted. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Summed up in 23 seconds. <laughs> the film itself is <laughs> nearly three hours long. I mean, it's... it's uh, again, I'm going to use the word interesting because I just don't know where else to go when I when I think about this film. It's a film Tarkovsky's a director I'd heard of, uh, but I never watched any of his films until until we started exchanging film ideas and, and, and viewing suggestions that i watched it again for a second time uh and it's man it's so intriguing it's i'll tell you what really struck me this time it's it's in in the sense that it's basically about what you said it's about but um it's two it's nearly three hours long um means that there's a lot of sort of space in there for like intuitive meaning making and allegory and metaphor and so that so trying to reduce it to one reading would be very very it'd be ridiculous however the reading that i made of it this time or the or the the, the parallel that i drew with it this time uh was with the wizard of oz which we have both recently watched <laughs> so it's about it's about these three Characters. It's like the Wizard of Oz without Dorothy. This is my revelation this time. Three broke, three broken men live in a sepia reality, escape to a a, a technicolor place where all your wildest dreams can come true, but then choose to come That's, back. I wonder if Karkowski ever saw Wizard of Oz. I've never heard anybody <laughs> else reading it that there's way. A paper there, right? Man. There's, <laughs> there's got to be a paper. There, there's got to be. I mean, and it's only because we chose to watch The Wizard of Oz a couple of weeks ago, probably, that I made this connection. But it's there. I mean, it's... Yeah, you got the the mundane, the real world. That's just, yeah, black and white, sepia. And uh, yeah, they cross this border into this fantasy world. It's all in color. They're all kind of deficient, right? They all have, like, their thing... Yeah, exactly. They all want something, yeah. you know. You know, a bit of bit of heart, bit of courage, yeah. bit of brain. <laughs> I mean, there, there's some other things that struck me this time around as well. Um, <clears throat> I was really intrigued by the the writer uh, and his like diatribe in the room of all the sand pits about how much he hates writing, and writing is like being consumed and like almost like a zombie kind of movie, right? So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the writer. Yeah, as, as someone, he's he's an angry man, <laughs> and he starts off drunk, and he just wants to keep getting more drunk. You know, <laughs> cheers. But the, prof- the professor is the one who wants to blow the thing up. So yeah, right. But then he doesn't, right? Now that's what I love too, right? Like the room, like grants your deepest desire, but then it's it's like, what what is your deepest desire? Is it what you think it is? Is it what you present to others? Is it what you present to yourself? Yeah. And then, and of course, there's the other stalker who got his de- deepest desire, and it was just to get a lot of money. And his brother died in the process, and, you know, and he kills himself because it's like his deepest desire is actually pretty selfish and pretty boring. 
it's strange it's it's like um i like that i like the ambiguity and the ambivalence with which it presents the room like none of our characters go into the room right they they just talk about it and then they don't actually do it and they talk about their wishes and they talk about their dreams and their desires and like you say interrogate the idea of 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 how we present what we want to the world but deep down we might want something else and yeah, I, I mean, it's it's incredible. And it has the backstory, like you say, of Porcupine. Yeah. The, the name of this film are really weird. <laughs> right, Porcupine. And and then the, you, what really gets me at the end is the is the wife and the daughter, Monkey, right? Did they have the weird moments in the in color at the end? Yeah. Thing? Well, yeah, there's two, the, the two last scenes, right? Like one of them's the wife's like monologue, which is basically delivered... It's sort of fourth wall breaking, right? Like she kind of delivers it to the viewer. Like, why did I marry this man? You know, there's this weird speech about why she married him. And then there's this even stranger scene where the daughter is like staring at these glasses. She recites some kind of poem. And then, yeah, she's like moving these glasses telekinetically. Like, what? <laughs> it's such a crazy film, too. Like, I, the first time I saw it, I'm like, I don't know that I get it. <laughs> But I, 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 oh, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. What I really need, I need to watch it on a big film because the production design. So I watched a documentary about Tarkovsky's method and he does in, in that film. And I think in most of his films, if not all of his films, he's the director and the production designer. So he looks after the sets. He dresses the sets. He does all this stuff. And the production design is just mental in that film. It's so cool and so detailed and so strange and full of weird esoteric and meaning. I knew that they like went on location like kind of like Latvia or Lithuania like I think it was Latvia some of the, like they a lot of Est- uh, Estonia yeah um, but they created some of those sets like the the grinder the meat grinder the tunnel the guy walks through at the end like they created all that and the last time I watched it I'm like did they just like find these like tunnels and like walk through them like like, I actually found that more disturbing that they were actually just, like, wandering around in these, like, abandoned industrial areas. But I guess they really did recreate some, like, those are sets, a lot of those things. I, I guess so. I mean, they must have done it, like, with a scary, an, an uncanny amount of accuracy for just, like, a abandoned, derelict stuff because that's what it, it has that authentic look but what's really intriguing to me is that they shot it already in another country before they went to Estonia. You know, they made it's the film. history, man. I, I, I forget all exactly. Like, we said there's like three times they've shot the footage. I think three times, yeah. yeah. Like, t- like once in another country and then twice in Estonia with two different directors of photography. And then uh, there, a lot of people that were involved with it uh, ended up having, dying within the next few years, you know, within the next decade. Tarkovsky himself died of cancer yeah. yeah he died he died of cancer yeah and it's because of those weird carcinogenics apparently yeah, I think his wife did too and some of the actors and I think some of the cameramen as well all yeah, the actors yeah. died quite young too I think the, the the writer the guy that plays writer died pretty young he used to he uses them a lot in other films too yeah his name is like Sol Solonitsin or something so yeah it's it's uh, it's interesting. Another again, you know, there's there's so many different readings that you can perform. But I did read 
I did read today, um, just uh, before I watched Mishima, I was doing a bit of reading um, around Stalker, and I found out that it was the last film that he did before like voluntarily exiling himself out of the Soviet Union because he'd been really so frustrated with the process of making Mirror, which was his sort of uh, autobiographical film, and then he made Stalker, and then he was like, FU to the Soviet Union and he went to Italy and then Sweden to make his last two films before he died and that kind of sat really weirdly with my idea about uh, The Wizard of Oz like maybe the sepia coloured world was the Soviet Union and the the, the, the technicolour world was the West but with, you know sort of with so much promise yet with so full of flaws kind of thing. And one of his last films is called Nostalgia right? Yeah yeah that's the Swedish <laughs> one right? Yeah kind of always looking back just wants to go home <laughs> I watched all his films but this was ages ago I can't remember them very well what was the one with the guy like walking around in the pool in this empty swimming pool with a candle is that mirror I can't remember but that that's the one that <laughs> um, I, sh- I sent you the clip of and it's about analyzing Tarkovsky's use of time like his his whole thing about cinema is that it as an art form it's entirely unique because of the way it represents time and that's why in lockdown what we're experiencing at the moment which is this weird elongating and shortening of time simultaneously like you said it to me earlier on in a message you were like I've never had this experience of not having anything to do yet not having any free time yeah yeah Exactly. That's like a Tarkovsky film. <laughs> right, exactly. It's two and a half hours long, but nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's and the way you sort of phase in and out of it as well. Like like I've yeah. watched Stalker twice now. Yeah. But I've never I don't think I've ever paid attention to all two hours and forty five minutes of it. I think when yeah, I watch it hard, again right? there'll be another moment. Yeah, it, it, he makes it kind of hard. So you sort of phase in and out. It's very an, an it's interesting. It's a great scene where they're crossing through yeah, yeah. Go on, they're crossing through. Well when they're crossing into the zone, right? And there's that mm. the train, the very rhythmic sound of like the the cart they're on and the tracks. And it's like close up to their faces. You know, it goes on for yeah. five minutes. And then all of a sudden they're in the zone and it's just color. Yeah, and it just cuts, right? And there's a lot of those like close ups of faces and heads. It has the same thing with Monkey at the end, right? And it sort of follows her head and then it sort of pans out and she's on his shoulders. And that's a really weird dislocating moment as well. Yeah. Bizarre stuff. It's great. It's a great film. I know I've seen, you know, I watched it like yeah, twenty years ago. And it left an impression on me, and I watched it again for a film club. I'm like, you know, I like this. Maybe I was just full of it. I don't know. Let's watch it again. But no, it, it's got, I don't know what it is, man. There's something about it. It's just it's just a fascinating film. It just, it draws, it, it's like hypnotic. You know, it draws, it just like draws me in. It's the same with the, the, um, the Taste of Cherry. The one that, you know, that you recommended me. Right, that. right. Uh, Abbas uh, Kiristami Kiristami it was, it's very similar feel to it you know it's like and, and Roger Ebert you know called it boring um, but it's I don't find it boring it's it's sort of hypnotic you know it sort of draws me in it, it's you know I'm not excited but it's like I'm just I'm fascinated you know I'm just I'm watching I'm just like like what's happening here you know I, I don't know it just draws me in 
it's it's fat it's great isn't it it's and it's like a sort of a subversion of that that notion that that standard classical narrative film does which is to like to um create the willing suspension of disbelief and draw you in so you are utterly compelled because you believe that all these characters are real and this scenario is real mm. whereas what tarkovsky does is is construct something compelling for a different reason you know yeah. you're like intrigued by it without fully buying into it or investing in it in yeah yeah it kind of I, it's I, I took a russian art class ages ago and i it's been a long time but i know like the idea behind like, a russian iconography compared to, like western perspective like western perspective is supposed to create like a 3d illusion so you kind of like mm. feel like it's coming out at you but like iconography is it's supposed to like have that effect where it draws you in like instead of being an illusion that like pops out at you it's supposed to like draw you into it and i Man, think that's, that's fascinating that's so I, interesting yeah i wish i could remember more about it but yeah there's there's definitely he's and one of one of his uh classic films is andre um andre rublev which is like mm. a bio, biopic about this thing i don't know this russian medieval iconographer but ages since i've seen that movie too but russian art i don't know i, I <laughs> My favorite, my, whenever I whenever I think about Russian Russian art, I think about that quote from With Now and I, where he's talking about Russian plays, and it's just like you know, just like women staring out of windows looking at rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Solaris too. That's another great film. Another uh, great Solaris or Tarkovsky film. That scene in the library. Yeah, it's a, a, I need to rewatch that as well. So I watched that on your on your suggestion, having known about it for yeah. many many years. So Tarkovsky's been this guy that I always wanted to watch and never did until you were like, watch this, and then, <laughs> and then I did. So it's, yeah, it's it's madness. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really I'm I'm fascinated by his. Um, I was watching uh, a little documentary about him, and it was talking about his first film. Which yeah. sounds really brutal as well. Have you seen that? I forget what it's uh, called. Is it, now. Is it like Ivan's that, Childhood? Yeah, Ivan's Childhood. Yeah, that's a good one too. That's a little more conventional. I mean, that's a little more straightforward. That's just like this kid surviving like post World War II, you know, mm. very blown up landscape, just kind of trying to survive in that landscape. It made me. It made me think of. Um, it struck me as a very different representation of a child's eye view of Nazism to. Life is Beautiful and Jojo Rabbit, which, you know, these two <laughs> films that I've been talking about, like this sort of weird kid, child's eye view of it. Uh, but then you, know, you look at Ivan's childhood and it's like, yeah, just brutal family murdered dealing with it. <laughs> this is the Russian perspective. <laughs> of course. There you go. Russian art. Man. <laughs> What do you think before before so before we move on to our Werner Herzog coda and yes. and the final questions? Hmm. What do you think? Do you, do you think that there's a connection in, in between these films? I mean, I I think I can see, as as I've said before, a certain amount of cynicism and pessimism and nihil and nihilism and existentialism which is a, a heady brew of ism it's all fair it's all fair game um yeah they're dark films to be sure um 
Yeah, for me, I think I've always wondered like that original. Like I've never been into like mainstream films, obviously, um, and I think that's partly because I didn't grow up on it. I think if you grew up with like Indiana Jones and all that stuff, then you like you're, you're totally into it. But I didn't grow up with that stuff. I wasn't introduced to it. Hmm. You have none of those like nostalgic hotspots. Yeah. You just go straight in with the. Yeah, like like Back to the Future. Like for some reason that film was sort of like always on in the background in my childhood, and I really. Like that one, I latched on to quite a bit. I liked the the symbolism of that and like all that was implying. But yeah, I never like my brother was into like Star Wars and all that stuff. But even that didn't really like latch on to me. I didn't like watch. I guess I didn't like get into films much until I was probably like a teenager. Again, Matt introduced me to a lot of films, and I started to like get into them more. I watched like TV and stuff. Uh, my parents, like I said, my parents, my parents showed like weird films too, man. Like, so we, I re- we watched Shane. That was one that we watched, like, um, like on the whole, the 16 millimeter projector, Shane. Oh, really? Man, yeah. do you know what that, that sounds like such a romantically wonderful yeah. experience. <laughs> it like, was. Shane, Shane is a great movie. It man. is, and, it and is. He, yeah. Do you like Do you like Drive? The Ryan Gosling film. You've, I, I listened to your interview with Sutapa, and you, I need to watch that film because I yeah you, you mentioned that it was a remake of Shane. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. I need to watch that. Film. Dude, we'll we'll watch it together. We'll watch okay. it together. All right. Because I I could never I could never get enough of that movie. All right. There's a um, There's a Clint Eastwood film that's like Silverado, I think. That's basically a remake of Shane as well. Ah, nice. Yeah. I, I've I've not heard of that one, but yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's it's a it's a good stock generic storyline. Yeah, the other films that my parents in my youth decided to introduce me to. <laughs> I don't know why. Blazing Saddles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, and this one I don't. The Last Picture Show. Oh wow, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepherd, Sybil Shepherd. Wow, what a what a beauty! Yeah, yeah. There's this really weird scene where they're like these teenagers are having sex in this bed, and it's like the springs are creaking. <laughs> like, like I don't know, my parents, I don't know if they thought that was like a less like a good like coming of age lesson for me. I don't know. These are the films I remember watching when I was a kid. That's that's interesting. You know that uh, you're the. So Peter Sapelli also had a, a a memory of sexually marginally sexually inappropriate film watching with his parents. Yeah. And for him, it, it was like for the Fijian parents, it was like off this goes. I did not realize that was the what the film was about. For me, I then I then countered that that I at the sort of the age of puberty remember when a film would come on it would be by accident not by design not like hooked up to a projector like your parents <laughs> but we'd be watching channel four maybe the most risque of all the british channels when there were only four of them or five and then a sex scene would come on and we'd all just be sit there in sort of in, you know very, stiff yeah. upper lips very, very british yeah very british <laughs> but I wonder so if they... you're, you're, your parents hooked up a projector and made you watch softcore. <laughs> I don't know. I you know I, I don't. I wonder if they would even remember it or why they picked this movie. 
or why they thought I should watch it. Maybe they were like, maybe I was like 13 and they were like, well, they were probably sitting there go, looking at each other going, I, I did not remember this scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. They'll be listening to this. Like, it's too late. We've hooked up the whole projector. <laughs> Last picture show. Yeah. I don't remember much about it, but I remember that scene Man, the bed was all, it was like a squeaky old bed. Simple shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> That's what stayed with you. Mm. Not the not the not the beautiful cinematography. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich, the 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 run run down American towns, and uh, it, it, it's a great movie, definitely. I should I should rewatch that movie. That'd be a good one to rewatch. Actually, I, I've yeah. not seen it for a long time, but yeah. you know, I, I, I was watching. Um, so here's a, here's a weird digression, but the, <laughs> why not? Um, <laughs> We, we've talked quite a lot about... We've both sort of been introduced to the Dick Cavett show in the last right. few... Like, in the, in the last six months. It's kind of an American institution, but you'd never seen it. And I'd, I'd, I knew about it only by reputation. And I watched a bunch of Peter Bogdanovich interviews on... on um, on the Dick Cavett show on YouTube, just in this little rabbit hole that I went down. And he really, really reminds me of of Bill Hicks. Young Peter Bogdanovich is almost exactly the same as Bill Hicks. It's incredible. Yeah. When was that movie made? Anyhow, I don't even, I have no idea when that was made or anything. That that would have been the 70s. So so the, the, the most recent one I watched was Dick Cavett had an interview with Frank Capra, right? Mm. Frank Capra, who did... All those 1930s, 40s movies, Mr. Deeds, Goes to Washington, right, right. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. It's, it's a Wonderful, a wonderful Life. life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Had him in his, like, 70s, had Peter Bogdanovich, had Robert Altman just after MASH yeah. had come out, and it had uh, 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 Mel, Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles. <laughs> so it's a great... A crazy confluence here. You should watch this. All four of them talking about whether Hollywood was dead on the Dick Cavett show. Back I'll have in the to 70s. send you the link. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. He's on Bojack Horseman too. Well, they, some, somebody. <laughs> of course he is. I had to get Bojack Horseman in there. Another uh, nihilistic uh, TV show. It's like BoJack Horseman. It seems to be like the sort of thing that Paul Schrader could have could have oh, developed, yeah. right? Totally. totally. Yeah, oh, I love that show. Yeah. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. Okay, let's move on uh, and talk about Werner Herzog, uh, the the Teutonic, <laughs> the, the very kind of uh, epitome of of Teutonic existential dread. I wish I could do a Herzog X. And for some reason, you love him. I, yeah, I know. Me too. You know, I tried to in in what in the Fernando interview. Did you hear? Did you hear? I don't remember you trying that. No. I I, I said something. I was trying to do. You know, the the. <laughs> I saw nothing but death and murder yes. and whatnot. I'm not even going to try and do it again. But I tried to do the accent, and then I listened back, and I was like, I didn't remember Herzog being Spanish. But <laughs> Yeah, it was. I, so again, take it back to Bojack Horseman, the guy that does the voice of Mr. Peanut Butter actually does a very good well hard talk accent. So. Oh really? Yes. Bang. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. Let, let's let's focus on Herzog because so we did we talked about Herzog on this show. I'm going to call it a show now sure. um, because I've had a couple of whiskeys. Oh yeah. On this show, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about Herzog Fitzcarraldo. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I rude, I rude not having notes with me because I, all the way through, I had this really intelligent thing that I wanted to say that it was like Sisyphus, like not only the film, the the subject of the film, but the idea of what Herzog was trying to achieve was very mm-hmm. Sisyphusian. Yeah. So I'm glad I got that out now. All right. Uh, but 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 apart from Fitzcarraldo, because I don't even think Fitzcarraldo is your is it's not your favorite, is it? You, it's not my favorite. No. No. It's got some interesting moments, but it's definitely not my favorite. Which films do you like by him? Uh, Aguiera, of course. Aguiera, The Wrath of God is... That's just classic. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Grizzly Man, which we watched. Uh, Stroshek. I love Stroshek. It's just a weird... This is the one that really intrigues me. Yeah. You, that's one that you introduced me to for the first time. And that's a that's a bonkers movie, man. <laughs> it's that, so the, weird. The yeah. guy, the, act, the actor in it, I forget his name. Do you know his name? Oh shoot! I can't remember his name now. Yeah, it's it's like a one. It's like a one name. It's like uh, something S. Hold on, I'm yeah. I'm googling it. What do you call it? Mononymic or it's like share? <laughs> his name is Bruno S. Bruno, yeah, Bruno S. Yeah, Bruno S. Yeah, yeah. So that film, so he kind of strikes me. So he's like a like a non professional actor. Like he seems in that film to not not want to be there in front of the camera most of the time, which I find very intriguing. Yeah, he's like um, he just says sort of maybe he's autistic or something. I don't know. He's I'm not sure how he discovered him, but he was he's just kind of an odd person that he found. He puts him in a couple of films, uh, but yeah, he's I, I love the scene where he's he's talking to his girlfriend. And he's got like this model, and he's like talking about the model like it's himself, and it's like the third person, and he's like, "This is Bruno, but Bruno is unhappy." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh man. (sighs) Yeah, that guy's great. He was yeah. He was supposed to use him in Wojciech. Wojciech. I don't know how you pronounce it, but that's another one. He wanted using Klaus Kinski in that one. Uh, Another great film, and that's that's based on. um, 19th century play, I can't remember the name the the playwright, but uh, yeah. Sorry. Nothing, nothing <laughs> That's there. okay. I got nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> you can cut that one out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll cut all this out, don't worry. We're gonna end up with about twenty minutes of uh, <laughs> good good material. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean I think Herzog is a great one to discuss because because you um, made me watch a bunch of his films, like yeah. Errol Morris, like um, Tarkovsky, you this is this is this is part of the 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 film filmography I associate with you, Dan, and it all just fits. It all fits into a particular worldview, right? Doesn't it? Bleak, pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, in a way, and yet, and yet, I mean, this is this is something that I said to uh, to Fernando. That he has all these weird kind of challenging, subversive uh, likes about cinema, but he's just like a really laid back kind of dude. Like you're, you're, you're not. I would laid back is not the expression I would use for you, but you're just like you're. You're fun. We have fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And yet, when it comes down to your favorite films, it's it's bleak chasms of darkness all the way. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to pick Groundhog Day as one of my favorite films, but I guess that's kind of dark too, isn't it? 
Because I was thinking that's kind of like a light, final little film, but it ends happy, but it's got some dark moments. It gets there eventually. Yeah. But, but the premise, certainly, I've, I've had this discussion before, the premise of Groundhog Day, despite it being one of, I would say, one of the greatest comedies of all time, is super, super dark, the premise. It is, yeah. I mean, he kills himself a few times, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah, to escape the the horror, <laughs> yeah. like the, hor- the horrible repetition of his life. Yeah. And Dan, you wanted to bring this up as a light-hearted element of lockdown. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not podcasts. all. I'm not all bleak. I like this movie. This is a silly comedy. Oh, this I is like else. this movie where where the guy jumps in front of a train because his life has become so repetitive. What What do you mean, Ben? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> See where I'm going with this. <laughs> it's a good movie, though. That's one movie, like, if that's on, I'll watch it. Like, I, I don't, yeah, like, anywhere, I'll jump into that movie. I, I just love that movie. It's just a great movie. Yeah, I mean, the, the irony is not lost on me, but I've seen that film <laughs> probably about 50 times. Yeah, yeah. Just a great concept. What, and one of my favorite reinventions of that concept was the Andy Samberg movie Palm Springs. I saw you post that. I have not watched it yet. Though. Ah, you got to check it out. Yeah. It's really good, really intelligent updating. The sort of the hints of darkness, the, sh- yeah. the silly slapstick comedy. Uh, it's got it all. There was also a, a series on Netflix called Russian Doll. Have you seen that? I never got into it. I watched like three episodes and I, uh, it wasn't uh, doing it for me. No, I like that a lot too. Yeah, with Natasha Lee. Uh, this is another yeah, similar I, yeah, riffing on that concept too. Okay, so um, where where are we now? The Herzog. We, we, we haven't we, really talked yeah, about... We're still riffing on Herzog. We haven't talked enough about Grizzly Man. And I was, I was close to picking that as my physical film because frankly, not much more physical than getting eaten by a bear, right? I mean that's yeah, you know. I, I can see how that would that would come close to your physical. <laughs> and choice. I did, yeah. I did have a similar. I saw that in the theater. I went by myself to go watch that, and I remember coming back from it and being having a very similar reaction to that that I had in Night of the Living Dead. Actually, that just weird, like physical dread, anxiety, just like it's kind of horrific reaction to it. You know, like just the idea of it. You know, like this guy when I got. Just the idea of being eaten by an animal. I don't know. For some reason, that's just especially disturbing and traumatic. There's, there's some really disturbing moments in that film. And, and what, what's really weird is when it first came out, I was, I was quite convinced that you heard some of the audio I, footage. I felt the same way. Yeah. And then when I rewatched it, it was like, yeah. oh, no, you don't at all. You don't. I felt the same That's way. I remembered hearing that footage. And it's because, it's because of that, he said the power of suggestion. It's that great scene. He, Herzog is listening to it. And he talks mm-hmm. to the friend of, of Timothy Treadwell. He says, never listen to this film. Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, do not listen to this. <laughs> it's... It's, it's powerful, isn't it? It really it's is. Powerful. Yeah. It's more powerful than hearing it. I swear, hearing it would not have the same impact. Just like mm. not hearing mm. it and the way when he says that, you're just like, oh, that must be really messed up. Like, and if, we'll, if Herzog isn't playing it, I mean, this guy doesn't shy away from much, right? He doesn't, right? <laughs> 
and also what it does is there's there's other points in the film where it talks about like the lacerations to yeah. the bodies and and this must have happened yeah and i think at some point someone says he's heard telling her to go away but she's hitting the bear with a pan so you get these sort of different layers and uh, before you even get to him listening and saying you should never listen to this <laughs> you have these other like threads that you weave together yourself and convince yourself that you've heard it in a way that's crazy yeah you put it like little suggestions in your head like it's so much more he could have played that tape i don't think it would have the same impact on you is the way he no, does it. No, definitely not. It would have just been a mess. I bet yeah. it's noise. Yeah, you just be like, oh, this is messed up. This is sick. But what he does is he dissects it. Yeah. And he gives it to you in threads and layers, and it's more powerful than it, it could It really be. is, yeah. Yeah. And just like, yeah, that view of nature is like sort of idealistic view of nature versus, like, uh, of course, Herzog view of nature, which is just like <laughs> chaotic and just madness. And, it's just, in nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing. They just screech in pain. <laughs> oh, my God. He's incredible. Uh, <laughs> Even the birds. Even the birds. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's milking it, too, right? Like, he's got to know, like, that's his, that's his shtick, right? I'm not sure. I'm not sure because I... So a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast that he did with some uh, scientist guy who's got a really famous podcast, and I found that just a few weeks ago, Herzog had done one, uh, an interview with him. And he was talking about when Herzog himself, when he was 14 years old, he was wrestling with all these theological issues, like... Like, how can original sin exist? And, you know, this is like literally 12, 13, 14-year-old Herzog was wrestling with theological issues that had gone back centuries. And he was he was saying, so, you know, the, uh, I'm not going to do that. I just can't do it. But he was saying, the 13-year-old me was thinking, well, if this was scriptured in the 3rd century, then how come this was written in the 7th century? And I was like, man, what? When you were 13, <laughs> you were thinking these things? So I, I, I don't think that he... I don't think there's any layers of pretense. I think he's just that... It's just how he is. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's just how he is. <laughs> i tell you, uh, a, an interesting thing I saw recently was... Um, um, uh, it was at the a skateboarding magazine. So oh, I contacted yeah. Herzog. Do you know, I think I shared it. And it's like, uh, he, they're, they're like, what we really need Herzog's opinion yeah. on, on <laughs> these kind of failed skating videos. Yeah. And Herzog's like, you, you know what I love about this? He says, <laughs> I love that they try and they try and they fail and they fail until they get it right. <laughs> they ask him at the end, right? They're like, would this make a good movie? He's like, yeah, sure, why not? 
<laughs> you could have some like he's like a Russian Russian kind of like monks and Russian kind of music in the background. Ecclesia Russian ecclesiastical music in the background. Monks chanting. <laughs> uh, yeah. He seems like he's up seems like he's like totally up for the crack, like totally up for like new and interesting things yeah. at the same time as being like wildly embedded in third century Christian Gnostic scripture when he was a teenager. I, yeah, he's very, so. he's an incredible. And also what I also learned from this interview was that he was, when he was a kid, he, he was in a bombed part of Germany and uh, during the second world war and his mother had sort of pulled him out of some debris when their house was bombed and ran them up into the Bavarian mountains. And Oh my God, here we go. I'm just remembering this. He never watched a movie until he was like 18 years old, like Paul Schrader. And like there you, you. <laughs> there you go. we're tying it all up at the end. Yeah? <laughs> oh man. Send me that. I, I want to watch that interview though. That sounds really good. I'll, I'll send you the link to yeah. it's, it's a podcast and it's, it's very recent because they're talking about being vaccinated and not having masks on the guy is a scientist like a quite a renowned scientist i think who's also been cast as an actor in some of herzog's films okay it's very interesting i'll, I'll send you the link yeah he's done so many films yeah. but okay let's let's wrap this up uh, i think the one last question mm. <laughs> which I, uh, with it with a certain amount of dread because you've drunk quite a lot of whiskey. Yeah. Dan Brown, what would you like to see more of in movies? So, I did have some facetious responses to this question, but I'll take it seriously. No, so actually, I thought about this a lot. When you showed me the movie um, My Name is Joe, the thing that struck me with that movie... So I would call that like realism, like that's social realism, like hardcore social realism. Yeah, and then I was really hard pressed. I'm like, which American director does this? And it's like, there's no American director that does this, really. Like, who? Which American director does like social realism? I mean, actually, to some extent, Schrader maybe, but Schrader always works in like these archetypes of like good and evil, and it's just kind of weird, like. I don't know, like, like with Taxi Driver, this it's kind of like social realism, but I feel like there's something. Well, but there's there's such a huge amount of stylization in there. I think, right? Like even like First Reformed, which is another great film that you've introduced me to. I I can't put that as social realism. No, no, exactly. And then maybe like Spike Lee, uh, like Do the Right Thing. Like that's kind of like social realism. Maybe? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that once you move away from the sort of the the, the white kind of mainstream, yeah, you, you you definitely get a little bit more. Yeah. But but even I think there's some nuances and stylization in Spike Lee's films. Yeah. That that pull them out. I mean, if you're specifically saying like my name is Joe yeah. Ken Loach, yeah, I'm hard pushed to find an American Ken Loach. Certainly. No, definitely not. And I'd love to see that. You know, somebody. Some American director needs to, to like tap in to that, you know, social realism. I don't know though. I mean, it's cause, you know, my I, you know, I said a PhD in literature, and you know, the thing I studied was like British realism. It's like 
George Eliot and Thackeray, and like, there's a definitely a tradition in England of like social realism. So I suppose that like Ken Loach comes from that tradition, and I don't know. Maybe in America we just don't have that, but. I don't know. What are, well, you think in America, in America, there is the, the manifest destiny and the American dream. Maybe it's just anathema to have those kind of explorations. Escapist fantasies, like you know, <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I don't know. <laughs> well, you've got. I mean, I, I would. I would say that the the best interrogation of the American dream is like for me Hunter S. Thompson okay. and that kind of weird gonzo or and ah here it comes <laughs> David Lynch okay well definitely not realism <laughs> so you you got to you got to you got to mention no not realism but but that exploration of the of the underbelly of definitely, that yeah. representation of what is American yeah in in Britain there's a tradition of social realist exploration of the underbelly of of British society and culture, yeah. right? Whereas in America, that that exploration is either either surreal yeah. or hyper real, which would be the sort of Hunter S. Thompson right. and David Lynch. Yeah, yeah, Karashi, right? In Britain, I don't know who the direct who who directed my beautiful Andrea. Like that's another ah, Hanif Karashi. Yeah, uh, well, the director was Stephen Frears, yeah. but Hanif Karashi wrote it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's again just like. That to me is like realism. Like that's that's. But then there's that sort of that thread of like magic realism in um, in Qureshi's writing. I think. Yeah. Which is interesting, and I think that's an interesting part of British, uh, a, if we could call it a British aesthetic, that melding of of magic realism and kitchen sink dramatics. You know. Yeah. Like my favorite example is Brazil by Terry Gilliam, right? Which is like at the at the same time like very nineteen eighty four, almost Kafka esque exploration of bureaucracy, but with these weird flights of fancy and. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. So yeah, really, I I'd like to see like American directors. Yeah, I mean, I've you know I've heard other people on the podcast talk. You know, like, and I agree with a lot of what's been said. You know, like more chances, people need director take greater risks more originality more creativity more diversity like all that stuff but yeah just Mm. like just like more honesty they should be you should watch um the florida project by sean sean baker right uh i think i've mentioned this to you before that's that's a really good movie that's a movie that social realist i think uh, in places and sort of also a bit magical, fantastical in places as well. Has these like representations of this. It's about like this single parent family growing up on a, in a motel on the outskirts of where Disneyland is. So there's this sort of there's the representation of the American dream over there, and then like the single mother prostitution drug addict motel reality over here ah the florida project yeah Yeah, no you should check it out yeah that sounds sounds great that sounds like exactly what you want (laughs) but it's literally the only film i can think of (laughs) that 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 does american um social realism we we export fantasies you know we export you know you can do anything you want that's why i like these bleak films man because it's like I'm not doing everything I want, you know, like I, 
I find it reassuring to see people who are like not acing life. You know, I don't know. Like I, to me, there's something kind of uh, I don't know. It, it's comforting in a way. It's like look, you know, yeah, that's you don't have to be a superhero. That's the realism. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You know, <laughs> you can be flawed. You can, it's all right. <laughs> It's it's taking flaws to an extreme, but but I yeah but yeah, yeah I, I mean when, when I was when I was writing about realism, there was a book that basically argued that like at a certain level, like realism and satire are indistinguishable. Like, <laughs> well, of course, satire Dan always has animals in it. That's how you know the difference, <laughs> okay. right? Yeah, except for nineteen eighty four, which was made into a very literal film that's that's see that's dystopia whereas animal farm is satire i'm sorry see how animal farm yeah. <laughs> cut, cut that out cut that out cut it out well i think uh we're about with that what last wild swig that i just saw you take <laughs> we're about ready to wrap things up man. Oh, man we've been talking for just over an hour and a half I've... anything that you wanted to say that you didn't say not now, no. Not when you put me on the spot like that. <laughs> yeah. Cut that out. Cut that out. We, sh- we should do this again sometime. Totally. Yeah. What did we learn? Did we learn anything from today's session? Um, Probably. Yeah. Probably. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, we probably learned something. Yeah, well, we didn't die. We didn't die, so that's good, right? It's a good night. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Dan, thank you again very much and good night. Good night. I was just reading my notes Mm. and it said that all three of your films uh, represented worlds of decay or worlds of decadence. (laughs) Excellent. I love that. I love that. Worlds of decay. Or oh, worlds of decadence. <laughs> worlds of decadence. Ooh.